American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. In the 1880s and 1890s, the unrest and disaffection about the changes in the U.S. economy start to break out into movements, some of them organized, some of them disorganized. And initially, these movements take place in rural areas, areas that are the most hard hit by the transformations of, of the, uh, the new economy, and areas where those transformations seem the most negative. And collectively, we call these movements populism. Now, you know, technically, not all of these movements were part of, for instance, the populist party or the People's Party, as it's, it's specifically known, that runs candidates in national elections in the 1892 and 1896 elections. But they're all part of the same process, the same larger process of growing criticism of and desire to transform the course of American capitalist development. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at the populist movement. So to understand the populace, let's quickly refresh our memories about a couple of the large-scale processes that are in particular hurting farmers especially during the late 19th century. One is that the shift to the gold standard and a gradual decrease in uh, prices around the economy has an especially large impact on farmers. Typically, they produce one marketable commodity, and that commodity is almost always dropping in price over these decades, whether we're talking about cotton or wheat or livestock, in all cases, what happens is that as the number of dollars, gold dollars now, in the economy shrinks relative to the increasing quantity of goods, the price of individual goods is falling. Now, another side of this process, which is also pushing in the same direction in terms of prices, is that more and more producers are entering the market and their goods, the things they make, are being transported more and more efficiently. They're competing with each other. So a grain farmer is now not only competing with the other farmers in his North Dakota county, he's competing with wheat farmers from all around the world. A cotton farmer is not only competing with the other cotton farmers in Georgia or even in the South, he's competing with cotton farmers all around the world. Prices, which had been dropping because of currency shifts, are dropping even further because of efficiency and integration of markets. For individual farmers who, as I said, produce maybe one commodity that's marketable, this is especially hard, and it's especially hard because they tend to borrow money to get through the year. Over time, the drop in prices means that the dollars that they pay back uh, their loans with are really more expensive to them than the dollars that they borrowed in the first place. So they are losing ground dramatically over the course of the 19th century. And often, whether they're sharecroppers or farm owners themselves, they find themselves further and further in debt with each year. Now, whether we're talking about farmers in the Midwest or farmers in the South, and whether we're talking about white farmers or talking about black farmers, they all, in the 1880s and 1890s, share this, this one common issue. And that is that politics, normal politics, is not going to provide any kind of solution to their broader problems. The two political parties have essentially united around the policy of the gold standard and price deflation. And the two parties are also are deeply beholden 
to some of the other institutions that seem to be hurting the, the welfare of farmers, in particular railroad companies and banks and other sources of credit. These are major contributors to politicians. Uh, these people are not likely to be the targets of any kind of reforming legislation, and in fact they're not. So farmers find that they need to go outside of normal politics. They start to organize in a variety of ways. In the Midwest, they organize something called the Grange, which is a farmers association. Uh, it's in part about distributing better agricultural techniques, but it soon becomes a forum for political organization. Likewise, in the South and also in the Midwest, you have branches of the so-called Farmers Alliance springing up in the 1880s. Often related to the Grange, often people are members of both. This also becomes a political advocacy organization. And in fact, in the South, it becomes one of the few places where African-American and white farmers and sharecroppers can meet. Branches of the Farmers Alliance are uh, organized as the so-called Colored Farmers Alliance, but they work together with the White Farmers Alliance in many Southern states to try to promote a common political and economic agenda. Now, what's in that agenda, you might ask? Well, uh, there are some key economic reforms that farmers believe will help them. For instance, greater state and federal regulation of railroads and other corporations to ensure that small farmers are not charged unfair rates, for instance, for shipping their crops to market. New kinds of uh, credit institutions are also proposed. For instance, one of the favorite ones is a kind of commodity bank, an organization uh, to which all farmers belong that will store crops like cotton or wheat not only to sell them at a time that's more advantageous and, and to reduce the profits of the financial markets, uh, which are playing and, and gambling with these commodities, but also to hold them so that they can be used as collateral. And by using them as collateral, Farmers Alliance thinkers uh, and uh, policy experts believe they're, they're going to be able to create a new stream of credit that goes to farmers because most farmers can only borrow from local store owners and other sorts of extortionate institutions. In fact, most southern counties don't even have their own banks. All the credit that's flowing to them from the world market is flowing through local store owners and large uh, wealthy planters. This route around those kind of institutions of credit, farmers believe, will help to ease the problem of getting enough money so that they can plant a crop and hopefully uh, eventually get themselves out of debt. But finally, uh, the other thing that uh, these groups do is they literally organize third-party movements. And all across the South, in particular in the 1880s, these third-party movements threaten the hegemony of the standard Democratic Party, which is really, in, national, uh, in the national picture, not so different from the Republican Party. They threaten the hegemony of the Democratic Party, and they also threaten to take over Southern politics. Because of course, in those states, farmers and sharecroppers are still a majority of voters. The one thing that the powers that be have going for them is the ability to split white farmers and sharecroppers from black farmers and sharecroppers. And to do so by playing the same old race card, employing the same old technique of suggesting that whiteness brings a psychological wage. If they can't do that anymore, if colored farmers alliances and white farmers alliances can really work together, then the existing power structure in the South is really going to come under threat 
And this is what Southern senators and representatives are really worried about by the early 1890s. In 1892, the Farmers Alliance essentially morphs into something called the People's Party. The People's Party, or populists as, as we come to know them, begins to run candidates in congressional and gubernatorial and eventually even the presidential races. In 1896, in fact, the uh, People's Party is so successful that the Democratic Party does its best to incorporate the People's Party. It names their favorite choice for president as the Democratic Party's choice for the presidential candidate, and that's William Jennings Bryan. And Bryan, against the wishes of many of the gold-supporting insiders in the Democratic Party, makes so-called bimetallism, coining silver as well as gold to expand the, the monetary supply, the core of his platform. But what happens is that he loses, and he loses big. The Republican Party is able to organize uh, in a massive uh, campaign that draws on the funding of large corporations and also sweeps in um, traditional Democrats who are afraid of what they see as the sort of rural revolt that the, uh, the People's Party has brought into the ranks of the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is able to bring all these uh, elements together, unite them in a massive victory for its candidate, William McKinley. And back home, uh, in the rural districts, in particular of the South, the Farmers Alliance, which has turned into the People's Party, is starting to splinter. And not only is it starting to splinter, it's being pushed out of politics in general. Because in the southern states, Democratic politicians from the old-style Democratic Party have decided to launch a series of campaigns for what becomes known as disfranchisement. Disfranchisement is literally pushing African Americans completely out of politics, taking away the right to vote. Over the next 15 years, through a series of means like uh, literacy tests uh, and poll taxes and other kinds of processes, other kinds of laws that specifically discriminate against African American and poor voters. And there's even one called the Grandfather Clause, which says you cannot vote uh, if your grandfather was not a free man. And this uh, automatically pushes out uh, many of the descendants of former slaves. All of these processes split white and black farmers, and they reduce the possibility for a third-party movement that will take away democratic hegemony in the South. Ultimately, many of these same laws will disfranchise white sharecroppers and other poor whites, many of whom also will not be able to pay taxes, uh, poll taxes, many of whom also will not be able to pass literacy tests. But the effect of these developments on both the national and the regional level is to destroy the populist movement. There's one story that's particularly, particularly sad, and that's the story of Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson was a fiery reformer in the 1880s. He comes up through the ranks of the Farmers Alliance and the People's Party. In 1892, on the People's Party ticket, he wins election to Congress. And he becomes the vice presidential candidate of the People's Party under William Jennings Bryan in 1896. But with the defeat of populism and the rise of disfranchisement, Watson uh, has a choice. He has a choice to go with the defeated remnants uh, of his party or to accept an increasingly uh, higher paid series of jobs uh, from the sorts of people who run the Georgia Democratic Party in the 1890s and the 1900s. And he takes the latter option. He becomes an editor uh, for a 
very conservative newspaper. And in 1913 and 1914, he advocates, literally advocates the lynching uh, of a Jewish man who's been accused of raping and killing uh, a white Protestant uh, textile mill worker. In this uh, case, the Leo Frank case, uh, Watson's behavior is particularly shameful. Uh, and though he will be elected uh, a U.S. senator, his name goes down in history as disgraced. He is, in fact, the bad version of what could come out in the aftermath of populism's defeat. The good version, of course, is that the ideas that populism represented did not die. Uh, they survived and would be incorporated into a series of other movements, which would eventually uh, transform the American political economy in some very interesting ways. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.